The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Today's scripture reading is going to be done from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for gathering us again today. We thank you for your word that, uh, that pierces through all of our wayward thoughts, that pierces through all the cares of this life. Your word that is our true guide because your spirit speaks through it. And so we ask for open ears right now and open eyes. We ask that you would straighten anything that's crooked, that you would give us joy in Jesus Christ. Amen. When we look at history, some of the most fascinatingly heartbreaking stories come from people who either didn't act when they should have because they didn't see the good thing in front of them for the genuine good that it was, or tragedy can happen when people didn't take precaution because they didn't see how dangerous the dangerous thing that was looming over them really was. So tragic loss comes either when good or dangerous things are unappreciated for what they really are. Examples uh, of good things ignored. In 1961, the Beatles auditioned 12 songs with Decca Records, but they were rejected because the manager said, you know, guitar groups are really on their way out. Five months later, they signed instead with George Martin at EMI. Or in 1976, Ronald Wayne sold his founding 10% shares of Apple back to Jobs and Wozniak for a mere $800. And today those shares would be worth more than $95 billion. And in 1995, 12 different publishers rejected the idea of J.K. Rowling's first work, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. 
And now after 600 million books sold, those publishers see the tragedy when we don't realize how good a good thing is. And then there are also tragedies in history when people weren't nearly as afraid as they should have been. Like in AD 79, when the people of Pompeii didn't take seriously enough the threat of living next to Mount Vesuvius. Or in 1919 in Boston, 21 people were killed and 150 people were injured in the Great Molasses Flood. Because for months, the owners of the factory just ignored the warning signs that this holding tank was ready to blow. What a way to die. And one year earlier than that, um, in Russia, the entire family of Tsar Nicholas II was massacred because he had failed to take seriously enough the danger of Bolshevik insurrection. Now, why do I survey all this historic trivia? It's because today our passage shows us the good opportunity that is better than anything before it. And our passage shows us the great danger that is more threatening than anything before it. And in these verses, the Holy Spirit is pleading with us to please, please, please take these things seriously. Don't become part of history's greatest tragedy. This is the fifth and the final warning passage in the book of Hebrews, and it reminds us why we want to, why we can, why we must endure in this journey of faith. We must earnestly pursue endurance because Christ's kingdom is both the greatest opportunity and, in another sense, the greatest danger with which everyone must reckon. How could Christ's kingdom be both something wonderful and also a fearful danger that seems to, to be mutually exclusive? And uh, in this text, it's going to use the experience of ancient Israel at Mount Sinai to serve as a foil for that. So let's look first at an outline of where we're going. Remember, the big question in chapter 12 has been, how are we going to endure in this race of faith? How are we going to make it all the way to the end amid life's hardships that make us want to fall back and just quit and, and leave off any meaningful following of Christ? Well, our verses today show us that first, a greater kingdom verses 18 to 24, a greater kingdom also represents a more fearful danger, verses 25 to 27, and therefore we must endure through thankfulness and awe. So first let's think about Christ's kingdom as the greatest opportunity, worthy of our whole lives, the chance of more than a lifetime, the one thing that we simply cannot miss out on. And to see how, to see how that's true, first we need to remember that rightfully one doesn't just have free access to the God of the universe and all of his benefits. You don't just saunter up to him and, and treat him like your buddy. And to remember that, we need to remember back to the, the really definitive encounter of God for ancient Israel when they communed with him from a distance and they received the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And it's to that experience that the verse 18 and following refer. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now, before we get into this experience at Sinai, let's ask, why does this passage start with the word for? That's our link to the earlier parts of the chapter. And it's saying that, it's, it's sort of loading all that we've seen before into this text as well, saying that despite all of the hardship, 
that persecution may bring, despite all the discomfort of how our good Heavenly Father disciplines us and trains his people, enduring with Christ to the end is more than worth it. Don't trade away the blessing. Don't grow bitter and walk away. Don't fail to obtain the grace of God for what we're dealing with here is something new, something better, something ultimate. So, at Sinai, I want to be clear on this. At Sinai, the favor of God toward the people was present. They were invited to commune with the one true God. That was a privilege that no one else had experienced to that degree. But the experience was veiled, right? It was clouded by a sharp distinction between the holiness of God and the contaminated nature of the people. They were, as we are, people of impure motives. They worshipped themselves. They worshipped created things, not the creator. And so cleanness and uncleanness cannot coexist. One is going to have to force out the other. And that's why this very tangible mountain uh, on which God had descended, in one sense it could be touched, but it wasn't permitted to be touched. It would be lethal. That's why God gave all these tangible signs to educate his people about his holy nature. There's a blazing fire. There's darkness and gloom. How do you have both fire and darkness. It's because uh, the book of Exodus actually tells us that when the, the Lord descended on the mountain, the smoke of the fire went up like a kiln. So you can see that. You can get peaks of flame through this heavy smoke. Do you need any clear of a like warning sign? Stay back. And we read that the mountain trembled greatly. And we read that the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. Can you imagine that sort of terror, like this, this supernatural phenomenon where the quaking is somehow inside your own bones, and then the, the sound, the blast of warning, it goes past your ears, and it's like residing inside your brain. Understandably, the people freaked out. Verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. God had specifically given them instructions to kill any of the Israelites' animals that even wandered up to the mountain. And that was in order to demonstrate his stark otherliness. God is other than us. Now, a word here about God's holiness. Okay, when we see a passage like this, it, it might we have to be careful not to envision God's holiness as somehow meaning God's meanness or God's standoffishness, okay? We might have that inclination to think that way because we don't really value purity. We don't see its beauty or its necessity. I heard another pastor ask, like, what if we substituted the word holiness with the word goodness or loveliness? Now, they're not one-for-one one synonyms, but, but think about that positive emotion that comes over when you, when you think about those words. And the same emotion should come to us when we think about God's holiness because what's infinitely lovely can't be mixed with what's corrupt. And therefore, there are boundaries between the two. There must be boundaries between the two. It's a very good thing, indeed, that the God of the universe is holy. Can we perceive that, the goodness of holiness? So we're reminded of this old reality of Mount Sinai, and it held the terror of a righteous God whose presence we desperately need 
but whose presence we couldn't abide. We could never bear it. And if the audience of Hebrews, the people to whom this letter was originally written, if they were to pull away from Christ amid hardship, then this experience is what they would be returning to. Because this is who God is to us, apart from his provided solution for our sin that would be revealed in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ. So the first audience of Hebrews needed to know that even if they shrunk back to Judaism in order to avoid persecution, they would be right back at needing to deal with the terror of Sinai. And you, even if you're not ethnically Jewish, if you drift away from Christ, you too would still have to face the fearful reality of the God of Sinai. More on that later. But the text turns here. For those who are in Christ, you have not come to that mountain of tangible terror. Verse 22 tells us, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. So we, like ancient Israel, have been rescued out of slavery, slavery to sin. And we, like them, have been brought to the presence of God in order to commune with him and to be consecrated to him. But it's not the same mountain. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the peak of Jerusalem, the home of the temple where God dwelled among his people. So instead of the mountain of tangible terror, it's the mountain of celebratory sanctuary. And this claim that Christians have come to Mount Zion, that might have shocked the original Jewish Christian audience here because when they came to Christ, like hadn't they walked away from those rituals that centered around Jerusalem? They weren't even welcome at the temple anymore. Yes, but it's clarified here. We're speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem. We're speaking about the better city that all this passing reality of destructible temples was only referring to, representing ahead of time. So this is the city that all of our predecessors in the faith, remember chapter 11, all those predecessors surveyed then, um, they were waiting for this city. Like, like it was said of Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So this is the realm where heaven comes down and makes all things new. We can read about it in Revelation 21, 22. It's a, it's a city. It's called a city. It's not a wilderness like Sinai. It's populated. It's full of energy and excitement and belonging. And it's to this realm that we have come. How does that work? If it's a realm to be revealed in the future, how have we come to it? This is exactly the already but not yet tension that we see throughout the New Testament. When we've come to Christ, we have already come to Zion, but in another sense, we're still waiting to get there. It does exist. It is active as a very real kingdom in exile, but entrance of the people into that kingdom, into our true homeland, still waits for the future. But in a very real sense, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. If you remember, the book of Hebrews opened with him saying that Christ is superior to angels. He was kind of discounting angels. Like, don't look to angels, look to Christ. But here is an appropriate time for him to weave angels back into the narrative because angels aren't insignificant. So now we see that we're meant to be overwhelmed by the sheer number of angels. They're innumerable. And we should also be impacted by the joy that they represent. These are party angels. 
in festal gathering. So angels, they're not just emotionless servants, okay? They rejoice in seeing humanity redeemed. They're ecstatic when they see how God's purposes are unstoppably coming to pass. And, and they're our leaders in that sense. We should have the same sort of joy and ecstasy. So we've come to, also we've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We've come to God, the judge of all, and we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who is this assembly of the firstborn? The Greek word for assembly is ekklesia, the same word that we translate as church. And it's the assembly of the firstborn because we are all counted as firstborn sons, those who share in the inheritance. That's because we're found in Jesus, the one and only son who was appointed as the heir of all things. So I just want to say, if you're someone, if you're a Christian today who has experienced much loss in this life, whatever that loss is, you can rest assured that in the end, you get everything. You are an heir of all things with Christ. We who endure loss in the footsteps of Christ will not be sorry. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And there in the assembly of the firstborn, we're already standing approved before the judge of all. He sees our trust in Christ. He counts it as righteousness. And so in a very real way, we are already standing with the saints in glory. They're called here the spirits of the righteous. They're spirits because it's not until after the final judgment that the dead in Christ will be given resurrection bodies. So right now, their souls are with God. They are consciously with God in bliss. No more suffering. But they too still wait for something more. And they in life were found righteous through their hope in God according to the good news. And now they actually are without flaw because they've put off the flesh of Adam. They have been ushered into that place where sin is no longer possible. And all of this, all of this company that we keep in this heavenly city, this points to the fact that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this reference to Jesus as mediator of a new covenant is meant to remind us of all of the content of chapters 8 through 10. That only he, fully God and fully man, could make a bridge between a righteous God and sinful humanity. He took on our flesh. He fulfilled the demands of Sinai that we could never fulfill. And so now God's law is written not on tablets of stone, but it's written by his spirit on the very hearts of those who belong to him. So we have come to the more glorious mountain because we are welcomed in to celebrate. We're not forced to keep distance in order to avoid judgment. And the blood of Jesus sprinkled before the altar of heaven, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this reference to Abel takes us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11. Just uh, an aside here, you can read chapters 11 and 12 just as a unit by themselves and it's, it's very cohesive and helpful. Um, Abel's blood, close to the beginning of human history. He was murdered by his brother. His blood called out to be avenged, cried out for justice. Abel's blood says, great wrong has been done. Righteous God, will you not make things right? 
And there's a sense in which Abel's blood condemns all of us. Because we have all wronged others in ways that are contrary to God's good design for his realm. We have all twisted and destroyed life instead of cultivating it. All of us have distorted his image. So Cain is emblematic for what merits God's justice upon all of us. But Christ's blood spoke a better word than Abel's. Abel's blood says, God bring justice. The blood of Christ says, God has brought justice. It's a word of atonement completed. It's a word of mercy obtained for all who are found in Jesus. And so if you have come to him, God is no longer a righteous avenger chasing you down. God is a satisfied judge who is welcoming you into his presence. You have come not to a mountain that you're not permitted to touch. You've come to the Savior who told Thomas to place his finger in the holes of his hands and to touch the wound on his side. So these verses are a wonderful picture of the better kingdom, but that's not the end of the passage. We also need to remember that Christ's kingdom should be even more fear-inducing than Mount Sinai to those who have not taken shelter in him. We might be inclined to think, okay, since Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder, Christ has quenched Mount Sinai's flame, so we're, we're good, right? We're safe. There's nothing to worry about. That's right, in Christ. But if you drift away from him, if you treat his salvation as cheap, if when hardship comes, you don't draw near the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help, but instead you draw back and you rebel because you think, you know, life was frankly just better in slavery to sin. Well, then you're holding up Christ to contempt and you very much then have something to worry about. In verses 25 through 27, we're going to see two things about the warning that Christ's kingdom presents to us. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Back at the beginning of chapter 1, we read that in these last days, it's no longer through shadowy prophets that we receive God's speech. It's no longer the prophets who warn us, but it's the Son himself. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is there in heaven right now, enthroned. And so at this very moment, Jesus sends his warning through his word. He warns us from heaven in a way that's for all the earth to hear. His warning is even more transcendent than that warning that was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. And the warning is that there is no salvation if we don't cling to Christ. If you go through the motions, but inwardly you've backed away from him, you've found no reason to draw near for mercy and help, well then, your celebratory presence at Mount Zion will be found to be a farce. There will be a reckoning for those who have approached Zion without festal garments. Jesus told this parable in, in Matthew 22 where he compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast. And it reads, um, at the very end it says, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, 
how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's no celebration in store for those who take the form of someone who belongs, but without the substance of really entrusting themselves to Christ, drawing near to him, relying on his mercy and grace and not on themselves. So when hard times come and you're tempted to draw back from Christ, remember not only the goodness of his realm, but also the nature of this warning that comes to you even now from heaven. His warning is transcendent. And his warning is also final. Verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In Exodus 19, we read that when the Lord descended on the whole mountain, it trembled greatly. And these verses, these verses uh, echo that, but they, they're actually quoting from the prophet Haggai. And they're telling us that that earthquaking at Mount Sinai was foreshadowing what's going to happen to the whole earth when he descends in a final way to judge his enemies, to rescue his people, to establish his kingdom as fully manifest. And so... We saw this future moment of shaking. Uh, it was described also in Hebrews 1, which was quoting from Psalm 102. And it said, um, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. So this world around us is full of shakable things. Aren't you tired of being shaken? We shake because of health problems or a job that never lets you rest or a constantly shifting culture or the pressure of groups to which we want to belong, messy marriages, belligerent children, financial concerns, losses of other kinds. These these shakable things let us down these shakable things will one day be removed and in response to our shaking world we shake even further into depression anxiety coping mechanisms we crave for this like control over our lives if i can just stop the shaking but when we try to be the ones in control the results are kind of laughable we end up raging or alienating the very ones that we're trying so hard to keep near us and we put so much stress on ourselves that we end up cracking. It reminds me of how in China, the communist leaders actually um, try to control the weather. They, they shoot stuff into the clouds to make it rain prematurely so that um, it can, they can have a perfectly sunny day for their patriotic parades. But then, you know, the next week, there might be an earthquake or a flood that kills thousands, and they could neither anticipate it nor control it. We live in a kingdom that is shaking. We live, this whole world is on a fault line. Do you know what it's like to live on a fault line? Maybe some of you from California know what that's like. Um, Sarah and I lived in this, the Central Asian city of Tashkent for a time, and it was kind of unnerving every day to walk past apartment buildings that were visibly leaning 
with people still living in them. Um, and, and we woke up several times in the night to see all of our shelves shaking and various items falling off of bedside tables. Well, if you think that you can control your existence in this whole world that's a fault line, that's hilarious. I mean, not, not really funny, haha, but dark humor. Um, sooner or later, you're going to be shaken. And, and the truth is, you are shaking right now, regardless of how hard you're trying to hide it. And so, if we were citizens, if we, if we truly belonged to this fault line kingdom, there would be no hope. Because we're told here that a final shaking is guaranteed. But thankfully, that's not your only reality. You can navigate the earthquake that's coming. You can navigate all of the preliminary tremors with peace because you are a citizen of an unshakable kingdom. One that has already begun growing silently, subtly, pervasively like yeast. And when everyone else around you demands that you also build your life on the same shaky things that they do, you can be part of the resistance. They may hate you for it because, you know, the presence of the kingdom of Christ through you, that's a constant reminder to them that their life is vulnerable, that they are subject to shaking. So they may hate you for it, but you can be part of the resistance and you can invite them into it. So we see that coming to Christ's kingdom is the greatest of all opportunities. But facing it, which we all must do in one way or another, facing it in an inappropriate way is the greatest of all dangers. And that leaves us with the conclusion that we must approach the God who is in the only way that he's provided, by clinging to Christ, trusting in Christ, following Christ to the very end. We have to have that endurance that the first part of chapter 12 spoke about, of struggling against sin, of considering him who endured from sinners such hostility so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted when hardships come. We won't drift away from him when times are rough and when life brings unexpected hurts if we are people whose hearts cling to him every day. And our last verses are going to show us what that looks like. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We're to offer acceptable worship. When the Bible speaks about worship, it's not just talking about singing. It's not just talking about what we do here on Sunday mornings. It's talking about a whole life lived in a way that is bowed down in the presence of God. Eating breakfast as worship. Having conversations at work as worship. Doing laundry as worship. Resting as worship. And a big part of this whole life worship is gratitude for this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So does this passage help you see that kingdom more clearly? We have to cling to that vision. We have to cling to God's promises. We have to cling to these foretastes that we've had. We have to let that dominate our mind's eye so that when everything else feels like darkness around us, we still see what's real. You know, as a pastor, it's a constant struggle for me to limit the number of references I make to Lord of the Rings. Um, 
it's a set of, if you're not familiar, it's a set of fantasy books that's just chock full with so much helpful theological imagery. Um, and there's this one scene in the Fellowship of the Rings that, um, Fellowship of the Ring, that, that always makes me think of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits us. Uh, it's the character Boromir, and he's remembering his homeland and its mountain capital city, Minas Tirith. And uh, he asks Aragorn, have you ever seen the white city with the tower of Ecthelion glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver, its banner caught high in the morning breeze? Have you ever been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets? One day, our paths shall lead us there, and the tower guard shall take up the call. The lords of Gondor have returned. Well, that same sort of hopeful homesickness should belong to each of us. We should long for that day when we set our eyes on where we truly belong, the realm of justice and peace and knowledge and endless celebration and creativity and relationship the place where we will immediately be recognized as nobility who belong because we bear the seal of the king on our souls. So you should meditate on that inheritance. It should be a big part of what gets you up every morning because everything else around us feels and actually is quite shakable. But the unshakable is ours even now and it is coming. And we have to come to it in a, we have come to it in a very real way. And we have to keep it in our mind's eye to stay the course, to endure all the way to the end. So be thankful. Celebrate each day, even when that final celebration feels so very far away. This passage ends, though, with a stunning reminder that our God is a consuming fire. The blazing fire at Sinai has not gone out. It still blazes. So we dare not convince ourselves somehow that, you know, the God of the Old Testament was fierce, but now he's kind of become nice in Jesus. No. God doesn't change. Sinai, for all of its truthful terror, was a place of grace. We need to understand that. It was a place where Israel received God's very words and where Israel's elders in Exodus 24 even ate with and to some degree beheld God. Sinai was a place of grace. And Zion, for all of its celebration, will still watch its good King Jesus striking down the nations in a final war of judgment. So the question here is not the character of God. He never changes. He is more kind and merciful than we can ever imagine. And yet he destroys evil and he's no one to be trifled with. The question isn't who he is, but who are we? And where will we be found on the day of shaking? The welcoming host of the grand banquet is also the consuming fire. He is gracious toward us in Jesus, but if we will not have it, then he is lethal to those who cling to their sin. So we must respond to Jesus with awe and gratitude. Thankfulness because you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the blood of Jesus, which speaks a better word before God. These are awesome realities. And every day, the Christian life should be full of awe and wonder. It's like waking up and looking out on the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest. 
But here's the thing. What happens if you try to navigate the Grand Canyon or the Mount Everest, but you're not equipped like those who truly belong? You're going to die there. Will you be equipped with the grace that you need to live in God's presence? It's a free gift, and you'll know you have it because it results in thankfulness and appropriate fear. And this is the context in which we have to interpret our Christian lives. Seizing upon the greatest of opportunities and also escaping from the greatest of dangers. So look to Jesus and see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Lord, we ask for your help to apply these words. Each of us has different circumstances in our lives, different experiences of the shaking different pressures that ask us to conform and to settle for less and to ignore the great danger in order to escape very small dangers or to ignore the greatest good in order to obtain paltry goods. So God, give us insight. Peel back the veil on the spiritual realities before us. Help us see our decisions for what they really are. And we ask that you would make us a people full of joy, like the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and that you would make us a people of holiness who are fit to belong in your presence by your grace. Amen.